Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. And that is what this episode is also about, is new insights for creating products that customers love. And it came about because last year I was at a product management conference in Orlando, and the keynote speaker discussed leadership at Disney. That really got me interested in how Disney innovates. A few months later, I found out about Duncan Wardle, who was the head of innovation and creativity at Disney for many years. He led the team that helped Imagineering, the Imagineers are awesome, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Pixar, and Disney Parks to innovate, creating magical new storylines and experiences for customers around the globe. Many of you have probably enjoyed some of those experiences in one form or the other. And now he's a keynote speaker who also delivers workshops and ideation forums to companies around the globe. We go into a lot of topics about creating an innovation capability in a company and creating products customers love. I most enjoyed the customer research examples he shared for getting insights that lead to more valuable products. I think you'll like them too. Now remember, we take notes for you. You'll find the written summary of all the key information at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 284. And the very best way that you can help me with this podcast is by sharing it with others. If you know other people interested in product work, product management, product development, innovation, please tell them about this podcast. Forwarding those notes to them is a great way to share insights from this episode. Again, that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 284. And also, there's a bonus question that I asked Duncan that's not in the actual interview, but you can find the written summary of it at those show notes, theeverydayinnovator.com slash 284. And I asked him, how can organizations be better at innovating? Do we start in a specific group, get the executive team on board, make it everyone's job? How do we go about that? And his answer might just surprise you. Check out the show notes to see what that is. Now, let's talk with Duncan. Duncan, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be talking because you have a uh, ton of experience. What is it, 25 years of experience there at Disney and yep. in, as their head of innovation and creativity. Um, incredible role. I, I'm curious, at, over that time, right, you stepped into this role being asked to do an innovation at one point. How did you? Th- how did your thinking about innovation change over that? How, how did it evolve over that time? Well, I was head of innovation and creativity at Disney for 10 years. Um, it evolved from panic <laughs> when I was first when I was first given the role because I was head of um, global PR until then, and I was the, and so the call I got was from the gym and saying, "Hey, you're the guy with all the big ideas who seems to get them done. You're going to be in charge of innovation." So my first reaction was, "What the hell's that?" He said, "I don't know." We just need to innovate at scale. So the first thing we did was survey 5,000 people at Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilms, Disney, ESPN, ABC, and asked them, what were the barriers to being more innovative and creative at work? And the big five that we heard, and I don't suppose it'll come as any surprise to your listeners. Number one, I don't have time to think, and I don't give my organizations time to think, and we still don't. Number two, um, we're risk averse. We've got quarterly results to meet, and therefore we're not going to take a risk. Number three, consumer insight is being underused by organizations. They, if you ask a room full of C-suite execs, are you a consumer-centric or culture, they will all put their hands up. 
And then if you ask them and hands up how many of you have spent a day with your consumer, nobody in the room can put their hands up. Therefore, they are still a product-centric culture. Um, number four, ideas got stuck, diluted, or killed as they move through all of our processes. And number five is we all had a very different very different definition of innovation. And so in order to create a culture uh, uh, change the culture towards being more innovative, we need to create some common language. And so model number one, I would hire, you know, some of the outside uh, innovation consultants like IDEO who are very good at what they're doing, but they're not going to show you how they do what they do, obviously, because then you wouldn't hire them again. Model number two, we create an innovation team that can act as a catalyst for change. Absolutely. Um, but it also sends a subliminal message to the rest of the organization that you're off the hook. You don't have to innovate. We've got an innovation team. Uh -huh. um, model number three. Uh, was an accelerator program where we'd bring in young tech startups and, uh, you know, we'd surround them with a group of team of people to help them bring their idea to life and scale it, which was very good at bringing products and services to market much quicker than we could ordinarily do. Um, but when we had a very honest, and, and we had hackathons as well, but when we asked ourselves the very honest question, has any of these models um, evolved our culture to becoming more innovative? The answer was no. Um, so we thought, gosh, how do we actually change our culture? So people say, why did you leave Disney? You were there 30 years. You were head of innovation and creativity. Are you mad? Um, there's a monstrous gap in the market. Everybody, uh, innovation was sort of trendy about five or 10 years ago. Let's have an innovation team. Let's get an innovation lab. Um, but it's not really impacting the culture. Um, why is it not? Why did none of these models impact the culture? Because they're not touching the whole culture. They're only touching a very small percentage of the culture. So we've got all of these C-suites now standing up saying, you must innovate. We must take risks. You must be brave. We must think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, that's great. You're going to show me how. And nobody's teaching people how to innovate. They're just telling them they need to do it. And so I went to lots of conferences, probably like you, where you know and you leave at the end of the day very inspired and motivated and ready to change the world and a week later somebody asks you how that conference on innovation was and this blank look comes over your face and you think god i can't remember anything they said um because people learn by doing they don't learn by listening uh and so i left because i thought you know what i'm just going to create a toolkit a tangible toolkit that pe real people can use to solve real issues tomorrow morning at nine o'clock not six months from now not in theory not intangible. It's going to be, I'm going to help people make innovation easier for people, creativity more tangible, and the process fun. And I don't mean hysterical laughter fun, but I do mean enjoyable. You cannot change a culture by talking about it. Most of the C-suites seem to think they can. You can't. You, Fred and Sally, who work for you, they've worked for you for a year or 20 years, have to choose to use this toolkit when you're not around. That uh. is culture change. And so that's what I do. A lot of my work now is running training workshops for companies, simply making innovation easier, creativity tangible, and the process fun. We'll get back to talking with Duncan in just a minute. But first, I'm really glad to see how many companies are helping their product managers skill up, really caring for their product managers, helping them be more productive. Now, I've been doing that for many years now, specifically with a tool called the RPM Experience. The Rapid Product Mastery Experience. This was designed from the very beginning to be a virtual experience. It's a way to get a group of product managers or a product team all on the same page, sharing information with each other much more effectively, uh, maybe breaking down some barriers where they existed before, and having a new focus on the customer and how to get insights from the customer. 
creates an incredible foundation for everyone working better, more effectively, really moving in the same direction together. The RPM experience was created to be virtual simply because it just works better. And given the times we are in now, virtual experiences that have a proven track record are really important. Even when we get out of this, it's still the right way to go to help your product management team get on the same page. Find out all about it and schedule time with me to talk about the details about how we can help your group at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now let's talk to Duncan some more. I like that. And I like the toolkit uh, path that you went down specifically, because I would like for us to discuss uh, some tools that we can help listeners with while we can't do this interactively. Uh, we'll have to do it the best that we can together. And specifically, one that you talk about is getting insights to innovate. And I believe innovation is very much about solving a customer's problem. And if we could read their mind, that would be great, but we can't do that. Um, what, what are your... I would argue, well, I would argue well, you well, can. Well, help us out with that go, then. Go spend a day with them, for goodness sake. Stop looking in your data. If you only look where you've always looked, you'll only get what you've always got. Uh, Data is getting better and better, getting more intuitive, um, getting faster. Um, but so, for example, I'm sure you and your listeners, lots of people do focus groups. Have um, you ever yeah, been to, to a focus some, group? Yeah, to some extent. We, in general, we actually have a low perspective of focus okay, groups. But, right, so, but you've been to one, right? Yes. Okay. So you've got 12 individuals on one side of a two-way mirror. You've got two or three marketing executives on the other side of the mirror and a moderator sitting in between them. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, where you live in your house or your apartment, do you have a two-way mirror with people spying through on you all the time? <laughs> not to the best of my knowledge, and I hope that's no. not true. Well, probably not the most relaxed environment for getting real insights. Exactly. People are people. watching you. And, and so, as you say, getting inside the consumer's minds. Um, we tend to invite individuals into our focus groups, so, you know, 12 individuals, because our, our, our group has got the people who are income qualified, high affinity, the brand, 12, 12 different people are going to get value for money here. We only hear from the two extroverts anyway. We don't hear from the other 10 people. Um, and when you get individuals by themselves, they don't tell you the whole truth. When you get couples together, you've got what I call the self-regulating honesty policy. If you ask a man by himself, what do you do in Disney theme parks? He's going to say, oh, I go on thrill rides. I'm a manly man. Um, if he's sitting next to his wife, she's going to go, no, 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 dear. No, you did small world 17 times back to that. You really loved it. You get real honesty out of couples that you don't get out of individuals. The real insight comes from the second person, not the first. The real insight comes from their living room, not the focus group. Why? Because their real living room will either uh, support your data or deny your data, or you may come up with that insight for innovation that wasn't in your data. And by the way, if it was in your data on page 34, bullet point. 17, well, A, were you still awake? B, could you feel it? No, you can't feel data. So how do you bring data to life? Well, so there's a variety of different ways of doing it, and I'll explain two different projects and, and how we might go about it. Okay. Um, the first project was our data told us who could afford. Oh, by the way, our data also tells you, you know, uh, we have X amount of people in a geographical area that have an uh, income of $100,000 a year or more. Therefore, they can afford a vacation. Therefore, our data is informing us that we should spend lots of money advertising on that particular market. Until the day you get out of your data, step, step foot in a, an apartment in Manhattan, and realize that it's empty. Why is it empty? Because 85% of their income goes on rent. Can they afford a wall with your vacation? No. Mm -hmm. Ooh, whoops. This over-reliance on data. Now, 
Uh, I'll, I want to talk about, well, I'll go on to one particular project for a moment. This was Disneyland Paris, came to us and said, help us. We, uh, the economy is not good in Southern Europe at the time. We, uh, the German market is not doing well. We're going to have to increase the attendance from the United Kingdom market. Uh, so first step, yes, of course, you look at your data. Our data told us who had an affinity to the brand, who'd been shopping online, who uh, had been before, um, and who was in our consideration set, and who was a 10 out of 10 on a survey for the last five years when coming this year. Well, they hadn't come, so clearly our data was missing something. That's where our intuition kicks in. Believe it or not, if you've ever stared at the back of the head of somebody that you think looks really hot and they immediately turn around and stare at you, how did they know? Intuition. Huh. Uh, you have 100 billion neurons in your first brain, you have 100 million neurons in your second brain called your gut. Your consumers and you as a consumer are the vast majority of decisions you make every day about all the brands and services you choose to engage with, you go with your gut. And yet we overly rely on our data and not our intuition. So my intuition told me that there was we were missing something here. If they were a 10 out of 10 of them coming this year, but they hadn't come, right? Let's go find out where the gaps in our data were. So we went off and we lived with 26 consumers in their houses for the day. Um, our going in hypothesis was a very product centric. We build it, they will come. We'll build a new attraction, they'll come. Why? Well, because that's the way we've always done it. Here. Right. That's you know we've done that since July 17, 1955. And so, by simply spending a day with a consumer, um, do you have children? I do too. Good. Close your eyes for me, please, and keep them closed. Mm -hmm. uh, whilst you keep your eyes closed, there is a photograph of your children somewhere in your house, one that you can see in your mind's eye at the moment. Tell me where that photograph is. Uh, my bedroom. Okay. Is it on a nightstand? Is it on a bookshelf? Where is it? Um, right at this moment, it's on the floor because it has not been rehung. Okay. All right. So tell me who's in the photograph, please. Uh, my son. And what's his name? Cooper. And where was Cooper when this photograph was taken? Uh, I think that was taken at home. Okay. And mm -hmm. how old was Cooper the day that photograph was taken? Oh, he's probably about three or four in that picture. And how old is he today? He is 14. So. We found the same clue. You can open your eyes. We found the same clue in every single household we visited. When I asked the lady who I was living with, when I saw the picture, and I said, hey, how old are your kids, four or five? She goes, oh, no, love, they're 14 or 15, just as you just did. So how do we know that to be true? All of the people listening on this show uh, have the same photograph in their household uh, of the one of their children, probably 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years old older than reality and for those of you who are listening in who are too young who don't have children yet you know your parents have that dorky one of you from first grade in their living room that you wish they got rid of <laughs> before the boyfriend or girlfriend went around so so our, our intuition told us there's something going on here what do we not print photographs of our children anymore yes we do we still print photographs but even on their wedding day we print photographs so what's going on here so we dug a bit deeper spent time with five of the mums and don't forget, our going-in hypothesis was we build it, they will come. Well, that's a couple of hundred million dollars capital investment strategy. And here's what we found. Parents will tell you at first pass they want their children to grow up, go to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, uh, college, graduate, get a job, be happy, healthy, and successful. Do you want that for your kids? Of course. Ah, now you're lying to me. You want, <laughs> Cooper, you want Cooper in that little photo frame again when you walk in the door at night. You're still Superman or your wife is still Wonder Woman and Cooper comes running to your legs. You, He grabs you, you fall over, somebody farts and everybody loses it. These are the best days of your life, but they are gone right. like that. And you right. it. why do we love our grandchildren so much? Boom, they're right back in the frame. Hmm. And so so we dug a bit deeper using our intuition. We thought this, there's something here. 
So using our intuition, I had a conversation with five of the mums, and here's what we learned that our data could not tell us. There are three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. As you cross through that transition, you can't step back. You both desperately want to, you both know it's too late. I know where I was for all three, and as I was interviewing these mums, I can use my own intuition, and I can tell you my stories about the same three bittersweet transitions. I know exactly where I was the day that James, who was 10 at the time, came around the bedroom door. It was Christmas Eve. He pointed straight in my face and said, are you Santa Claus? And within that split second, we both knew that imagination, creativity, Batman, Spider-Man, clouds, creativity had been shot. Not only that, what he had really said, which hurt so much, was I'm not your little boy anymore, Daddy. I'm growing up. And that hurt. Now, Now, dads, you will remember where you were that fateful day. Girls, you will not remember this even took place. But if you text your dad as soon as you get off this podcast, uh, your father will apply in about a nanosecond because he remembers very specifically where he was that day. I was in Kissimmee, Florida. My daughter was on my left-hand side, holding my left hand outside Panera. We were walking across the sidewalk. And it was a Tuesday morning about 10.30, the day she dropped my hand in public for the first time. It was my left hand she dropped that day uh, because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore because she was embarrassed. And so dads remember where they were. You ask them, they'll answer you in a split second and they'll tell you if it was their left hand or right hand. And I know exactly where I was for the third one, which for us was last December. My daughter got her first job. We used to drive her up and back to university and the knowledge that she was always coming home and we would pack and unpack a third of her room. But this mm-hmm. time she got her job. We live in Orlando. She now, we moved her up to Manhattan and we, you know, we packed her into her apartment. We hugged, we cheered and we laughed. And then my wife and I got the Uber out the way to the airport and cried her eyes out all the way to the airport. Now, don't forget, going in, our data told us if we build it, they will come. What we learned from simply spending time with our end user, our consumer, at a day, we found this insight for innovation. Mum does not wake up in the morning worried about whether or not Disneyland Paris has new attractions this year, which is what our data was telling us. What mum truly woke up understanding, and this is the insight for innovation, is that she worries about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy, saving hundreds of millions of dollars and inventing a product that she didn't want and creating a communication campaign that drove uh, significant sales. Uh, over you know double-digit sales within a six-month time period and turned a very product-centric, we-know-best culture into a consumer-centric culture where it is now mandatory for all the Disney executives to go and spend at least one day a year inside a consumer's house. Um, the other thing I would argue, the insight for innovation comes on the fourth or fifth why. When you were a child, so Cooper, how old is Cooper today? 14. Did you say? 14. Yep. Well, when he was three or four or five, what was the, what was the question he used to ask you? What was the question he asked me then? One question, one word, one word. What did they say? Oh, there's a lot of why. Why? 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 Because they're better. Because they're better. Because they're better than your consumer insights team and your data Mm. are getting for the insight for innovation, the core consumer truth. The core consumer truth comes on the fourth or fifth way because he knew you lied the first time, so he kept pushing till he would get to the real truth. If you say to somebody, "Why do you go to Disney?" Somebody will say, "I go for the rides." Well, that tells me to spend a couple of hundred million dollars on the capital investment strategy. But if I pause for a moment, that childlike, not childish, and say, "Well, why do you go for the rides?" Well, I remember Small World. Why, why do you like small work? Well, I remember the music. Huh. Why, why, why is that important to you? Well, it reminds me of my mum. Why is that significant? I take my daughter now. What that just person, what that person just told you on the fifth why is the real reason they're going. It's got nothing to do with the capital. 
investment strategy whatsoever and everything to do with their personal memory and nostalgia. That is a communication campaign, which if we had stopped where our data told us to stop or where our consumer insights team told us to stop, we would have gone in the wrong direction. Okay, so let me ask you about where those insights came from. So the, you, there was intuition in here, but you're saying you're you know coupling data with intuition, and there was something special about these moments in the living room, right? So the, these were interviews, well, discussions. We, yeah, we, 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 yeah, but we we've done that one. So let, let's move on to a different style of doing it. Okay, that is about the, the the takeaway is if you haven't spent a day with your consumer, I suggest you do it. I would suggest your board and your your executives have never spent a day with the consumer. I suggest they do it. And if mm-hmm. they're going to do it, I would get to the fourth or fifth why. Those would be the first takeaways from the okay. first one. The second one is by looking in new and unusual places where your competition isn't looking. Your competition has the same data that you have. So if you're only looking in the same data, you're only going to come to the same uh, insight. And therefore, how will you find that insight for innovation. Uh, when we go off, we will often go and look in three different places. We're going to spend a day with a weird, a deep, and a normal. A weird is somebody who has a tangential relationship to your challenge but doesn't work for you. Uh, a deep is somebody who works in your industry but doesn't work for you. And a normal is you're going to go live with your consumer for a day. We were trying to get more Hispanics to come to Walt Disney World on vacation. They over-index on Disney. They have higher a larger percentage of children underneath the age of six, they over-index on Disney, and they spend a, a, a disproportionate amount more of their total overall income and revenue on time together as family. But they weren't coming, so and our data couldn't find the reasons why. So we went off, and we went and spent a day with a weird, a deep, and a normal. A weird, uh, as I mentioned, is somebody who has a tangential relationship to your challenge but does not work in your industry. We went and sold cars with a... Uh, uh, a Hispanic American gentleman to Hispanic American families. Why? Because he wasn't in our industry, but yet his challenge was the same. He knew who could afford his product. He knew who had an affinity to the brand. He knew who'd stuck their head in the garage twice in the last six months, but they weren't converting. Well, we were in the vacation business. He was in the car sale business. But ultimately, our challenge was in fact the same. We weren't driving conversion. So we went to go and sell some cars with him, and um, we thought we'd learn some things along the way. And when you go out on one of these consumer immersion safaris, as I call them, you write down everything you hear, everything you see, everything you experience, everything you notice. And um, at the time, they're individual data points. They mean nothing. But if you don't capture them at the time, you'll never know. When you get back together, you start putting those clues together. And suddenly somebody say, oh, you heard that over here. I saw that over here. And somebody else, oh, I heard that over there. I read that over. And suddenly you'll start to developing punches, sort of mega clues for want of a better description. So I wrote down two or three clues while I was, uh, I wrote down lots, but three I remember specifically from our day was we decided to leave a car on the driveway. And we left the car on the drive and we told the family we, we would leave it there for two or three hours and they could do what they want with it. And we just played the role of observer. I wrote down two or three clues. Uh, number one, how many Hispanic family members can you get in a car? That was number one clue. Number two clue was Abelita, the grandmother, wound down the window and said, when there's a fiesta, we fiesta. When there isn't one, we make one. Write it down. It means nothing. Third clue, the more, the more family members there were in the car, the more the giggles. Third clue. So just tuck those away. Now we went and met with a deep, somebody in the travel industry, but didn't work for us, a travel agent who sells packages to Hispanic American families, visiting their families down in Guadalajara or coming up to Los Angeles. This was just after the mortgage crisis where nobody was selling at rack, but she was. She said, oh yeah, no, 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 no. I only sell at rack. I was like, well, how on earth are you doing that? She said, well, I, I, it's important that they understand there's something there for everyone. 
something for Abelito, Abelito, Tio, Tio, Comadre, Comadre. Once they understand there's something for everyone, I can sell them anything I want. Okay, I'll write that clue down. Then I think about my own personal experience. My parents-in-law, they are from Mexico. On their 50th wedding anniversary, they went on a cruise. They did not care about the brand of ship they sailed on. They did not care where the ship was going. They did not care what the ship had on board. All they wanted was five tables of 10 together for dinner each night because they knew that would be the most important part of the cruise. Fast forward to our, our deep. We spent the day with a Hispanic consumer in her living room in her house. And it was her four-year-old's birthday party a week before. And uh, she had 64 people over. And you know, when the children are very young, it tends to be the adults' friends that are there, not the children. And um, she said the party wasn't complete because one wasn't there. One was her brother, his uncle. So now you put those clues together and far go all the way back to uh, how many Hispanic family members can you fit into a car, to the more members of the family that were inside the car, the, the bigger the giggles. I want 10 tables, uh, five tables of 10 together for dinner. When I show them that there's something there for everyone, I can sell it right. And the party wasn't there. Uh, the party wasn't complete because one wasn't there. So the consumer insight and we build the, uh, these opportunity platforms by taking a consumer insight and putting a, building, a business opportunity against it. The consumer insight that we found from all of these clues and building them into a hunch and then ultimately the insight was there's something about the shared emotional value Hispanic families get out of simply uh, spending time together in larger numbers. I can't remember the exact wording, but that's roughly it. And the business opportunity, how might we create a series of new products and services that allows the Hispanic to consumer to uh, to gather on mass? Uh, and that became uh, from from which we created a series of uh, new products and services that enabled that exact thing. And so that's a different way of doing it, uh, taking the data that you have, but then going out and meeting three different sorts of people who may shed some interesting light on your challenge and help you think differently. Excellent. As you were constructing those interactions, like the car dealership, right, and then going, uh, s selling things, the, uh, and then anecdotally from experience to the cruise ship, and like, um, if you were to construct an experiment around that, are you just going like to the one car dealer and spending the day with them? Or are you going to say, let's break into teams and go visit three car dealers a day? Well, so, yeah. I mean, so it's very well thought through. We don't just randomly show up at a car yes, dealer and yes. say, here we are. So there's a lot of work that goes into setting up the consumer emotion safaris for the teams. In many ways, what you're actually doing is bringing the data to life for them, because as I mentioned, you can't feel data. Uh -huh. So they actually gather, by gathering the clues themselves, they're actually beginning to feel the data. And sometimes they'll either find a hole in the data or a clue that wasn't in the data in the first place. Okay. Um, so obviously this is purposeful and it's the insights that come, come out of that. Do you find it's useful to have would you get back together to share those insights, share what they saw as oh, we so, create insights? So, so on, a, on an average project, you'll come back together as a team and you may have 3,000 clues on post-it notes around the walls of every single individual clue written down. I saw, I heard, I read, okay. I experienced verbatim, not your opinion of it. It's not what I heard Sally said, it's Sally said. And suddenly you start to, you literally take all of these post-it notes and you cluster them. You mm -hmm. say, so there may be, if there's, if you've got of the 3,000 clues, if 90 of them are telling you the same thing, then suddenly you're onto something which we call a hunch from which we develop a consumer insight. Okay. How do you take that hunch and do any kind of validation to say, okay, did we get this hunch right? Is, is this a real insight or are we just looking at something that's misleading? Yeah, so that's a fair question. But I think if you're hearing it from enough different sources, it's the same as hearing it in your data. 
So you wouldn't ignore what you'd heard in your data either. But yes, we will validate that either by going back through uh, data or mm -hmm. by surveying consumers or well, hot shopping where we actually get in the room with consumers and start uh, actually uh, sharing ideas and building the ideas with them, not without them, which I think mm -hmm. too many companies do that part of the process uh, without the consumer. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, so co-creating with the consumer. What did you call that? Sorry. Um, so I, I think oh, that we would hot shop the we would hot shop the ideas hot with shop. them and actually build them actually okay. build them together. Okay, yeah, and build it with them and get their insights, and then you come up with something, and they're bought into that process. Yeah, I just think there's you. too much power given to the insights team alone, and not. And when I say power, that's probably the wrong choice of words. People expect uh, the consumer insights team to be the the experts, and they should be the experts. But here's the thing: if we work for a company, shouldn't we all have consumer insights as part of our responsibility, not just the consumer insights team? And I think in mm -hmm. far too many organisations, it is only the responsibility. The consumer insights team is the only one who cares about the consumer. I would argue mm. everybody inside your organization should care about yeah. the consumer. And, it, and, and I think it's really the, the remit of 0.02% of the population of an organization. And, and I think that's wrong. Mm. Not wrong. I just think there's, there's a real opportunity. The more people understand the consumer, the more we can all think together as opposed to the remit of six people tucked away in a corner. Yeah, that's quite good. And if we're creating with them, we're creating prototypes along the way, we're getting feedback mm -hmm. from them, we're going to do a better job of delivering something they yeah, care I mean, about. We, we have human libraries where we'll bring in uh, a series of consumers and check them out like library mm -hmm. books and ask them questions, again, to build clues live in a room if we need to. Good. Well, this is all very helpful. I, I love the idea of where we started, right? Get into the living room with your customer, get insights in their environment, um, and go from there. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I asked you to share one for us. Uh, what is that, and why did you choose it? Well, so I'll go over to it because it's common sense. So people call it, oh, it's design thinking. No, it's not. It's common sense. It's find out what's important to the consumer and give it to them. Oh, but no, it's design thinking. Um, my, the quote that I put was, if, if you do what you love, you'll be really good at it. Mm. Right? I was terrible. I was terrible at math. Guess what? Never worked in the Disney finance department. Um, I was, <laughs> I was really good at uh, mad ideas and big ideas and audacious mm -hmm. thinking and helping people think differently. And I'm so passionate about it. I'd like to think I'm good at it. And I think that if people do what they're good at, they will be really good at it. Uh, and people, if you do what you love, you'll be really good at it. Uh, and to me, uh, I think it's common sense. We all had a favorite subject at school or university. Guess what? You were really you got A's in that subject. So why not carry that into your real life? Right. Yeah, it's an excellent perspective. I do like the emphasis of we should ex should accentuate our strengths and make the best of our strengths and not spend time trying to make up on weaknesses. If there's other people that are good at those things, let's run with our strengths. So not knowing math did not hold you back. <laughs> uh, no. Excellent. Duncan, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks again for listening. This is the place to find out how to become a product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. That was a great discussion with Duncan. He has some really good insights and experience. I just love the Disney connection. All the show notes, the key points are at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 284. Along with that bonus question is, how can organizations be better at innovating? And as I often say, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.